0: Hey, our topic for today, though, is probably at this point a, a bit given away, is it not? Uh, we are talking about generosity. H- having just sung the song, however, all I am is yours. I, I think we ought to do some soul searching before we get started and ask ourselves: Do do you have money? Or does money have you? Do, do I have resources or do they have me? Right? Like m- maybe the question has famously been asked this way What is your treasure? What is your treasure? We've been in this series about what a mature Christian ought to look like. What does God want us to be as we continue to grow up into his likeness? And we can't have a conversation about Christian maturity in dealing fairly with Scripture at all without also talking about generosity, a a subject that, frankly, at Bethel Church, I understand we have done very little talking about, aside from weekly, having an opportunity to give. We're talking about generosity today because we can't avoid it. And it gets us back to that question ultimately, what is my treasure? Last week, we looked at Colossians chapter 3 where where we learned it says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of the what? Earth, yes. Maybe we need to do that one over again. All right. Uh, Let me just change topics. Set your mind on things that are above, not things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ on high in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. That's the kind of mindset. Christ is my life. Everything that matters is in him forever. Forever. That mindset, that identity is what enables a Christian to be mature in a season of politics. That was last week. And really the same identity rooted in our nature with God is what enables a life of generosity. And we can't escape it. God wants his children to be generous. And you know, maybe you're already wishing you hadn't come today. We were hoping the cake in the lobby had given us some good favor, all right? But you might already be there, and I get it, because this is often talked about, I think, in lots of unhealthy ways. And so maybe let me be clear from the outset about what I'm not going to say today. Today, you're not going to hear me say that money is definitely bad, and that you shouldn't have it, or at least you shouldn't have very much of it, and you certainly shouldn't use it to buy things that make you happy. Tisk, tisk. Shame, shame. That is not what I'm going to say today. Today, in fact, what I'm going to try to communicate is that most of us aren't caring nearly enough about using our resources for maximal happiness. I intend to preach that money is a fantastic tool you ought to be thrilled to use to buy all the happiness you can. By happiness, I mean real joy, lasting pleasure forever. And I'm excited about that this morning. Because we can buy praise to our God, literally use money to buy praise to our God, and invest our resources in ways that pay out dividends billions of times more than any asset we ever will have. And we can do this with a heart that is totally centered on Him, set with Him. Mature Christians don't just... Hold stuff lightly, as it were. They take the resources they've received and hilariously cascade it out into gospel work and into the needs of other people to the praise of their God and the formation of their souls for glory. That is what we're going to talk about today. And we can see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I invite you to join me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Open your copy of scripture there because we'll be working through this together. This is a letter by an early church leader named Paul who was writing to a church he nurtured in the city of Corinth about a collection of money that was being made by the churches across the Mediterranean to assist. Jewish Christians in Judea. These Christians had been hit hard by outbreaks of famine and persecution. and At first, only the church in Antioch had responded by quickly delivering relief. And they sent that relief with two of their newer leaders, a couple of guys named Barnabas and Paul. After this first wave of support was delivered, the leaders in Jerusalem urged Paul to continue remembering the poor which he said he was eager to do. We can see that in Galatians chapter 2. So by the time Paul had written an earlier letter to the Corinth church, 1 Corinthians, he had already begun canvassing across the region for more churches to be contributing to bring relief. And he invited the church in Corinth to participate in this fundraising activity. He had said this, I'll just read it for you in 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection of the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, that's like Turkey today, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. We see here in the context of what we're going to read today already, there's a theological presumption at play that I don't want to assume everyone in the room with us agrees with already. So, so let's be clear. What we see already in the text is that Christians are called to give money for the needs of others and the work of the ministry. Christians are called to give money for the needs of others and the work of the ministry. This is something Paul is presuming in all of the conversation we're going to have. Now, for some of us, when we talk about giving we're at a distinct advantage because perhaps your parents taught you from when you were a kid bringing change to a VBS gathering or, or when you got that first job to start setting aside money and, and you made decisions about the first house you bought or the first car you owned to make sure you are first of all giving generously to God and how wonderful it is to arrange your life from the start that way. The the Gentile Christians didn't have that advantage. Paul's writing them to set up a budget that they hadn't historically necessarily had. The the early Jewish Christians, on the other hand, had an advantage. They had already had a cultural and religious habit of tithing, setting aside generally 10% of all their income to give to the work of the temple. But as the temple system was replaced by the work of Jesus, this habit that they had took on a new form. And we see that in the very first church. In in Acts chapter 4, it says, There wasn't a needy person among them, this church, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That was when things were going good. They already had that habit. They were meeting the needs of each other. But then famine hit, and then persecution started, and the church leaders asked Paul to remember the poor and start a collection as he's bringing the gospel across the known world because Christians contribute to the needs of others. But they don't just meet financial needs. Christians give for the work of the ministry in in general. We're called, Jesus called us to go into the world and make disciples and Paul fairly had asked the Roman church, how are they to believe in him who have, they haven't heard? And how are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how can they preach unless they're sent? We, we need people to send people to do this work of the ministry. And he would say, elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. They should be paid, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For scripture says you should not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer is deserving of his wages. The, This is a flyby overview, a condensed version of Scripture's teaching in general that Christians, mature Christians, give. They are generous for the work of the ministry and to meet the needs of others. Christians give to God's work. Way more could be said about that. Ought to be said about that, but that's the context that Paul is speaking from and to. So, by the time he's writing here the letter that we call 2 Corinthians, it's about a year after he's written the first letter, and he's giving final instructions for this collection that he's about to come to gather. So let's read it together. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Follow along with me. It says this. Now, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. Ministry for the saints. That's a, a very... Kind of colorful, kind way to say this gift of money you're collecting to give to the Christians in Jerusalem. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. Your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise... If some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Paul here, Paul's using like a friendly rivalry to to set up this collection of goods. He's using basically a matching gift strategy to encourage the Macedonian believers to give by holding up the believers in Corinth as an example of people who were excited and ready to give. Now, that's interesting because the Macedonian Christians were from a region to the north side of Germany, uh, sorry, of Greece. They were agriculturally, rurally, very Poor, impoverished, didn't have much resources, didn't have much money. In fact, Paul tells us earlier in the letter, he, he hadn't asked them to give at all. He was only going to the places that he thought, these people have resources they can contribute. But the Macedonians had gotten wind, like, Paul's asking all these other churches to give. He didn't ask us to give. And they came knocking down Paul's door, like, no, 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 we want to give too. And so Paul is hearing this. We, we, maybe I should just read it. He says it in verse 8-1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in. What would you think that equation leads to? Uh, abundance of joy, but extreme poverty. It's overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This is a, an impoverished region that are giving generously, and Paul's saying to them, now that they want to be given, hey, Corinth is ready, are you guys going to give too? And, and they are ready. So now Paul's talking to the church in Corinth, and he's a practical guy, he's a bright fella and it's and it occurs to him well shoot this macedonian church is is a work of god's grace they're given abundantly i've been holding up corinth as this church they ought to be like and well corinth is located right on the ocean there i wonder if this town is filled with a bunch of fishermen who tell tall tales about what they're gonna do but Don't have the catch to prove it. Like, what what if these guys aren't really ready to give the gift they've said they're going to bring? And so he sends an advance team to help everyone make sure they actually have set aside the money. They have been budgeting. They are prepared to give. And and that's kind of all neat historical information. But what Paul's about to say is where it gets really practical for us when it comes to what a mature Christian ought to look like in the way they give. Because Paul continues, and we'll see three ways that Christians are called to maturity through generosity. He starts by saying this in verse 6. The point is this. I love that. Just making it clear. Like this is what it all comes down to. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap. It doesn't take a genius to, to ascertain the first principle here. M- mature Christians give generously. Mature Christians give generously, Paul is saying. He, he uses an agricultural truism. Whoever sows stingily, they're going to have a, a stingy-sized harvest. But if you sow abundantly, generously, you're going to have a bumper crop of whatever you're planting. Because when you have grain, you put it in your silo in your barn. Or or for us, it's our bank account. But for them, agriculturally, when you have grain, you put it in your silo in in your barns. And then you have a choice. You have a choice. You could... Turn as much of that grain into bread as possible because carbs, am I right? I mean, fresh bread and cinnamon rolls, and this is Greece, so maybe they were experimenting with the early form of the pizza, right? Like, come on, make some food. Live happy through this winter, crackling fire, baked goods. Life can be good for you. Praise the Lord. The only thing is, if you live that way, you're not going to have much left in the barn to plant when it comes to the next season, are you? So you have another choice. You could choose to live on crumbs and reinvest as much of that harvest as possible, as much of that seed as possible into planting. And then reap a truly great harvest, proportionally larger in the season to come. See, the size of the outcome is directly proportional to the amount that you choose to give away. Now, admittedly, I don't know exactly anything about agriculture. I called a guy in our church up this week who who works in the industry. He he sells seed to farmers. He helps them decide and and find the commercialization of what they're going to plant for the year to come. And I asked him, like, hey, dude, is this actually the way this works? Like, if you plant a lot, can you expect a lot? And he g- generally, he said, that's exactly how it works. You, you plant a lot, you're going to get far more. But then as we're talking, he said something to me that, that just kind of stood out to me. He said, Ben, here's the deal. You, you've seen the, the commercial. You eat... Thank a farmer, right? Like, we've seen those. Like, did you eat food? Thank a farmer. And frankly, we should probably do that more often than we do. But he's like, here's the deal, Ben. That's not what these guys are thinking about at all. They don't care that they're feeding you. What they care about when they're talking to me on the phone about buying supply for the next season of planting is what's going to make me the most money. Like, how do I buy and what amount in order to get the most money on the market of grain or the market of corn or the market of soybean in the year to come? That's what they care about. And it strikes me, no, no offense to any of the farmers in the room. You're doing business. We get it. It strikes me, though, as ironic and perhaps sad, that farmers are thinking aggressively and intently About maximizing their investment in their lifetime and what they plant to make money. And yet, believers aren't thinking aggressively about maximizing what they plant and give away in life in order to make the most impact. You may hope and pray for God to do great things. Good. You should. We should. And so Paul reminds us that we should give greatly, too. I mean, otherwise, what else do we expect is going to happen? Mature Christians want a big impact, and so they give generously. And he continues, verse 7. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. The second thing we notice as Paul describes how they should be prepared to give in Corinth as this. Mature Christians give not only generously, but they give systematically. They give systematically. Remember, Paul had told them in his first letter, on the first day of every week, you should set aside and store up for yourself that you may, as you have prospered, so that you're ready to give when we come to collect. There's a system at work for us here. There's a weekly budgeting at work for us here, he's saying. And he says now... Give as each one has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Here's a second principle. Mature Christians give not only generously, but they give systematically. Systematically. Remember, Paul had told them in his first letter, 1 Corinthians 1, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside something. Each day, each first day of the week, weekly, four weeks a month, Set something aside. Store it up as you may prosper. There's a system you should use here. You should set up a budget to do this. And now he says, give as you've predetermined, as you've decided. Peterson phrases this in his translation, paraphrase of scripture. I want each of you, he says, this is the way he says it. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over. And make up your own mind on what you will give. This will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting by the guy up front. Our giving should be a budgeted, personal decision, not a matter of spontaneous impulse or whim. I showed up today, the music was all right. I think I'm going to give something. No, but it also shouldn't be I showed up today and man, they really turned on the waterworks. They were pushing us hard, so I, I, I wanted to get out of there with my dignity and try to escape quickly, and so I figured if I was giving something, that would get me out of here faster. Or like, that's not the play either. We should plan this out. We should build our lives around the fact that we want to invest our money this way. We want to give proportionally to how God has supplied us, and we've put together a plan to work out that desire. And Paul continues verse 7 there. For God loves a cheerful giver. We don't laugh enough in our offering moments, do we? God loves a cheerful giver. You know, God doesn't celebrate the size of your gift or anyone else's. Why would he? Scripture tells us, God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. The world and all its fullness are mine. Resourcing isn't God's problem. God celebrates the giver's attitude, their eagerness, their joyfulness, their happiness to be giving in a way that sets their hearts where they ought to be, where they'll get the most joy out of it. I mean, if we've had a Engagement or two in our church over the last season. And I think about this. If if a boyfriend were to arrive at his proposal moment and he said in monotone, do I have to get down like I'll just stand. That's better for everybody, right? I hate these cultural obligations. Stupid. Hey, I if it makes a difference, I got you this thing. What? Now you pretty much have to marry me, right? <laughs> this gets me out of trouble later on, right? Doesn't this make you like me more? Man, you don't have to be romantic to know that girl ought to throw that ring in his face <laughs> and walk away, right? Like, come on, that's your heart for this? How different. When it's Christmas morning, and your little toddler, right, like, I can't. They're like, Dad, Daddy, open mine next. Open mine next. Open it here. Jumping up and down. They're like, you open it up, and it's like, it's a wad of paper with glue mashed in, right? Like it's, <laughs> the, the gift is not worth celebrating here. But the dad there, he responds in love To that kid, because he's responding to the fact that that kid loves him, right? That's what we respond to, not the gift. God loves a Christian who's jumping up and down saying, God, I want you to use this, not me. I I want you to have this, not me. I can do without this, but I delight in you. That's what God's after. Cheerfully, systematically, generously, mature Christians give. They redeploy the assets God has given them as strategically as possible. And I get it. We live in a world that chokes us out of this attitude and makes us think, you need it. You've earned it. Keep up with them. Or we we might truly look at our situation and go, I can't make ends meet. How can I possibly, systematically, cheerfully give? This is a single sermon. I'm not going to say everything I want to say. Because you guys want cake after this. (laughs) Paul gives a beginning of an answer, though, in verse 8. This is what he says. The point is, so sparingly, reap sparingly. Give as you decide in your heart, not reluctantly. God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency and all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it's written, He is distributed freely, He is given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. On He goes. Mature Christians give because God gives. Mature Christians give because God gives. Because God gives all we need. We give because God gives all that we need. He says in verse 8 many times, all. God has been able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. It's a lot of all language there. And in giving of all grace, I think, as as I think through this this week, God is giving grace in at least two ways. Certainly God does give new life in Christ. That's a grace he gives us. It transforms our souls, our future, our perspectives, and the present, our identity through him. Since Jesus died in our place and for our sin, we respond by repenting of our sin, by believing in him, and then we are recipients of a grace that redeems and resupplies and transforms our purposes for our lives. But I think more specifically, Paul is not talking about God's grace through Jesus on the cross. God is talking, Paul is talking about God's grace through supplying every resource we've ever received. All through chapters 8 and 9, Paul talks about this collection, this gathering of money. And he never says the word money once. Not one time. He he couches it in the theological context that's there. I mean, he calls it uh, an abundance of joy, a generosity, a relief, an act of grace. See that you excel in this act of grace, proved by your earnestness. He, he calls it their work. He calls it grace, a generous gift. He calls it proof before the churches of your love. He calls it their ministry in, in chapter 9, verse 1. In verse 5, he said, it, it's a gift that you're arranging in advance. For he's using all this language, and he calls it grace, and a grace, and it's a grace, and it's a grace of your grace He's he's pointing out that everything we have is from a God who gives all we need. This doesn't mean that God is going to make the Corinthians wealthy. The same grace did not remove the Macedonians' deep poverty when God's grace motivated them to give out of their poverty. But it does mean that a Christian will always have what God knows they need, when they need it, with the opportunity to be generous in it. And in the meantime, our trust in God's sufficiency matures and shapes us so that we grow in holiness. I'll say it this way. His all-sufficiency trusted over and over again through generosity, transforms us into a holy people. Paul calls believers to be generous. And he calls a believer who is generous, here in verse 9, a righteous person with eternal impact. That's the quote Paul pulls from here when he says, as it's written, he is distributed freely, he's given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. You know, All my life I read this and it seems so exalted and godlike. I assumed Paul was talking about God giving freely to the poor. I assumed that God was distributing freely. His righteousness certainly endures forever. I just thought Paul was showing us an example in God. But that's, as I studied this week, I realized I was dead wrong. You, You go back and you actually look at Psalm 112 where he's quoting and The psalmist is talking about a person who is holy after God's ways, who is righteous. The psalmist says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the human. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. I'll skip up to verse 7. Talking about this human, he says, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady." He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph over his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Paul is certain. Scripture is clear that mature God followers are generous people. It gives away. It reveals that they're trusting a God who gives who will always give to them enough. They trust him wholly, so they're free to give generously. He says in verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower, so now we're talking about God, though. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvestness and righteousness. Increase your harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And man, if you are like me, your alarm bells kind of get ready to go off when you read a passage like this. Because a text like this has been abused and misinterpreted and mispreached for as long as it's been around. You will be enriched if you give. So donate today. You'll be getting a payday soon. Right? Whenever we read the Bible, we must be diligent to say nothing more than it says. But also, church family, we must be diligent to say nothing less than it says either. And so let me try to push on both sides of the spectrum for us. This passage does say Whether you believe it or not, that God will supply his people with resources, even multiply their resources, enriching them in every way. That's what we need to say, nothing less than. But it also says that these multiplied and enriched and entrusted resources are for generous giving, generous sowing. What we have is to be stewarded to give. In our culture, in the most comfortable society that's ever existed, we tend to think that God has given us or needs to give us more stuff for our own use. That's just your default settings because you happen to be born. And whatever year you were born, that makes you still alive today. But God has a different perspective. God gives all that we need To have more than we need. Either already in our possession or through his church family that he's put around us. So he's looking to cultivate mature Christians whom he can entrust with more than enough type of resources. Who are going to use those resources and be generous to use them for his purposes. This is going to be cheesy, but I'm doing it. This is what most of us want. It's a swimming pool. Now, admittedly, we'd prefer a bigger swimming pool. Maybe even in the ground with a deck around it. Now, there's an idea. A swimming pool. See, water comes into it, and it's, it's good. It's great. It keeps it right here. For us, and for others, of course, they can come over to my pool. Yeah, it's still my pool, though. <laughs> I make the rules, see? And I might even decide, while I'm enjoying it, you know, here here, here, here you go. You can have some. But what I really like is that there's water right here where I can use it, keep it. That's the way we think. On the other hand, I think God wants us to think this way. Like, like a pipeline, not like a pool. Where, yeah, on the one end, we're, he, he gives us things. But it, it it's for us to give those things. It, it comes in, but it goes out. We get to give. We get to give. We don't get to keep, to hoard, to hold, because we can't hold it forever anyway. And he's going to use it for better things than we can use it. So we get to give. And what that means is as I send it down the line, that leaves me high and dry, doesn't it? I feel vulnerable. I feel exposed. What what if I'm not going to get the most out of my life that I want? But what it does is it reveals a trust in the one who's continually resupplying, who gives more than we need. He gives what we need. And he gives more than we need. He gives us all we need to have more than we need. And as we give, we'll always only discover that he continues to resupply. Because he's after a heart of a person who's going to be distributing the resources he already has to do things he already wants to do. He wants us to be pipelines, not swimming pools. Money in many ways, then, is a test and a blessing. You have it. Some of it great. Now, what are you going to do with it? You've got resources. You you have it. Awesome. What what are you going to do with it? you got a spare bedroom. You have it. Great. What what are you going to do with it? You've got a talent. You've got time. You've got fill in the blank. Whatever God's grace has given in all that you need, he's given more than you need to give what you get. To get in order to give. I've heard it said this way. The question isn't, Ben, how much should I give? Percentage? A, a, a goal? The question isn't how much should I give, but instead, how much do I dare keep in my pool? How much do I dare keep how much money do i dare keep for administrative overhead on god's ministry account that he's funding to do his work do i do i really want to bloat that or do i really want to redeploy that what's the outcome of a pipeline kind of life of a generous mature christian paul says for the corinthians it was this verse 11 You'll be enriched in every way to receive, to be generous in every way, to give, which through us, as we deliver this gift, will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. The results of the generosity of the church in Corinth were twofold. One, the needs of the Jewish Christians in Judea were met. And then number two, they begin offering thanksgiving and praise to God. God is worshipped. You can keep reading. You see they start praying for the church in Corinth because of that. Unity is achieved through the Gentiles and the Jews. the, The list could go on. But for our purposes this morning, I'll just say the result of our generosity is provision from God and praise to God. That's what happens when His church is generous. Your giving is what God uses to be somebody else's provision, and that giving then becomes somebody else's praise. Do you see why we can give cheerfully? Mature Christians give generously and systematically and cheerfully because God gives all that we need to have more than we need. We can have the band come out because we're going to worship this God who gives us in this way. But I think we need to ask ourselves a question again as we wrap. And that is, in part, do I believe this? Do I think that I have what I need in, in God, or am I not so sure? Maybe we need to change our minds about what we think we need, lifestyle we think we deserve. Ultimately, what well, you have to ask, and what will be asked of us one day is, who has, what has your heart? Does your money have you? Your portfolio? Your car? The the money or the portfolio of the car that you Want to have. Mature Christians aren't owned by their stuff. The stuff God entrusts to them flows through them to wherever God might send it next. And they pour all the grace they've received into gospel work, into the needs of others. Mature Christians don't think, man, I need to sacrifice my comfort for this austere task of obedience begrudgingly, like, ah, do I have to? No. They've instead learned to count all the temporary stuff like cash or possessions in a dying world as loss. And they don't want loss. They want gain. So they buy all the happiness they can with something that won't last. By being as generous as God has supplied them to be here and now. So that God can multiply that into his purposes that will last forever. Laughing all the way to the giving. To the praise of their God, who just happens to be their example and source for generosity. Paul said in chapter 8, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. God himself was generous, and he wants you and me to be Generous, not because he wants our money, because he wants you. Enjoying him, multiplying his praise, not square feet or net worth. He gave up all his glory and he gave up his life because he loved you. That's generous. Let's be like him.